everyone. My name is Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. And we are bringing to you today a podcast called Are You Kidding Me? This is a podcast that is from the American Enterprise Institute. I am a resident fellow there, and Ian is a visiting fellow. But today we are recording from the Manhattan Institute studio in New York City, home of City Journal's 10 Blocks podcast, which you can also find on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. And our podcast is, of course, devoted to issues that affect children, particularly systems that are supposed to serve children but end up not doing it so well. So today, we are actually going to start with a little conversation about an op-ed that ran in the New York Times recently. The op-ed was called The Myth of the Two-Parent Home, and it was devoted to explain to us how, well, let's just say two-parent homes are kind of overrated when it comes to outcomes for black children in particular. You know, I want to uh, sort of talk to Ian. He's, uh, he's become a little bit of an expert in this for AEI and has some, some thoughts on the matter. And so uh, I'm going to sort of ask him what... What did you think when you saw that headline? Yeah, this is an extraordinary piece. It's actually a must read to really understand why people seem to be in this either or world of why kids are not succeeding, black kids or kids of all races. It it either must be structural barriers or other issues like family structure, but it has to be one or the other. So in this particular case, this author, Christina Cross, says that new research that she's done indicates that access to resources, the structural barriers that disallow kids from getting access to resources, that's the real issue facing black kids in particular, as opposed to family structure. And the whole article, the thesis seems to be, if the effect isn't as big as it is for whites, then it's not really worth pursuing. So for example... Which is a very, it's just a very odd thesis, you know, just, just because it's not as big as it is for whites doesn't mean it doesn't matter or that it's a myth. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and so she, so, so she literally writes, in general... Youths raised in two-parent families are less likely to live in poverty. Black youths raised by both biological parents are still three times more likely to live in poverty than are their white peers. Oh my God, three times more likely. That's a tragedy, right? But then you actually go to the actual study that she has cited. And when you look at it, you see that The percentage of children under age 18 in families living in poverty by race and family structure, 5% of white kids. That is extremely low. But amongst black kids who are in married two-parent households, that number is 12%. So she's outraged that the comparison between 5% and 12%, she says it's three, it's actually only 2.4. Meaning that, right, if you're married, if you're a white child in a married household, 5% chance of living in poverty, but a black child living in a married two-parent household, 12%. What she completely ignores is that a black child living in a single-parent home, mother, mother-headed home, is 45%. So the difference between 45% and 12% in terms of the likelihood of you being a child living in poverty is completely ignored. How about... I mean, the the number of programs that we have, federal, state, city programs that we have that are just trying to move the needle one or two percent on these issues and the and the billions of dollars we are spending on them compared to the effect you could have by having a two-parent family is just, it's, it's mind-boggling. But I, I want to ask you, Ian, like, what do you think is behind this? Why, why say this is a myth? What do you get out of this? If you're a researcher trying to offer these statistics, why emphasize this in particular? Yeah, I mean, seriously, are, are you kidding me? Because, <laughs> you know, rather than saying stunningly, 
by having having a black child raised in a married two parent household, your chances go down of poverty by seventy three percent versus a single mother household. That's that's huge. So why is this happening? That's so, the, by the way, like in, in journalism, we you know so so it should be the reverse. So you could say to be sure because you have to have the to be sure to be sure. You know this effect might not be as big as it is for white kids, but look how big it is. And instead, the the emphasis is exactly the reverse. Exactly. So you ask why is this happening? So it's really interesting. So I actually looked at the comments section related to this article. Oh, never read the comments. No, no, but no, no. Comments yeah. are very revealing. So in this case, there's there's a comment where a person says. Blaming black families for not having two parents allows whites to deny that systemic racism exists and has a powerful effect on those who experience discrimination. Blaming blacks for their lives and outcomes makes it all their fault and relieves the rest of society of any blame. Then it's easy to refuse to provide support and pretend that we don't owe poor people any kind of support. What's interesting about that is that there's such a fear of acknowledging that Factors like family structure are a real force that there's this fear that somehow that will take all the attention away from the real issues, which is what Christina Cross, the author of this article, says, it's all about the structural barriers. Are you kidding me? People, wake up. Both things can actually be true. There are systemic barriers, but that doesn't mean that issues like family structure should be ignored. In fact, what do we teach the next generation? What do we teach a black kid or a kid of any race today? Is it that they're just going to face structural barriers that they have no ability to overcome? How about teaching things like data associated with something called a success sequence, which shows that if you finish your education, high school degree, get work of any kind, marriage, then children, 97% of the people who've done that completely avoid poverty. Right. And I, you know, and I also like to add, you know, these days, you can't use the word racism without using the word structural or systemic ahead of it. We don't have plain old racism anymore. You can't just have like a single person walking down the street right. being racist. They have to be some part of some larger, the police, all the police are racist. The child welfare system yep. is all racist. Education is all racist. And so we're, we're sort of you know, setting these kids up for failure by telling them not just that you might encounter someone who's, you know, obnoxious or bigoted or mean. He is representative of an entire world out there that is out to get you. And what kind of message that sends to kids and, and, and the ability for them to overcome that, right. it just it seems impossible. It makes you feel powerless it's in the face of these barriers that are so dominant. And by the way, there are a lot of white kids that are hurting out there too, right? There's a reason for the opioid crisis. So the Census Bureau just released the latest birth data for the year 2018 of white women, 24 and under, 61% of those births were outside of marriage. Like, those, like we talk a lot about family structure in the yeah. black community. Yeah. It is, this is catastrophic for the white community. Where do you think, where do you think things like the opioid crisis are coming from or right. deaths of despair or chronic loneliness, which we're identifying in the white community? So we have to really start thinking about issues or factors that transcend race. Right. The, the two-parent home is not a myth for white people or for black people. Or and, Hispanic people and, or right, Asian people exactly. or people of any color. It works for everyone. It works <laughs> yes. for everyone. Yes, that's the, that's the, the truth of the success sequence. So. Yes, exactly. And, you know, and we should say that being a child of a married two-parent household is not a guarantee that everything in life will go great, nor is it that a child of a single-parent mom is, is guaranteed for failure. 
but the numbers are overwhelming. And to have articles like what appeared in the Times to completely dismiss the likelihood of success if you are in a married to parent household is doing a disservice to kids, to the debate, to the dialogue. Both things can be true. Let's right. just be and adults. You, and you can't even, I mean, it, it's amazing. You can't even talk about the importance of male role models or fathers anymore. I mean, Michelle Obama got in trouble for saying this recently. Pete Buttigieg got in trouble for saying this recently. I mean, how ridiculous is it that we can't make what used to be a, a completely, you know, bland statement about, right. you know, it's good to have, you know, a responsible man around who's a father right. of the child. You can't say that anymore. And, and by the way, it's not just conjecture. Raj Chetty, who is probably right now seen as the, the leading economist, sociolo- sociologist in this area, did a massive study a couple years ago where he identified that for black boys, you know, for in almost every class seemed to go down in terms of their long-term economic yeah. outcomes. But there was a huge asterisk when there was a father in the home or a concentration of fathers in the neighborhood dramatically increased probability of economic success. Yeah. So it's not just it's not just conjecture. These are real factors. Family structure matters. Let's get over this. Well, this. Raj Shetty is at Harvard too, so maybe they can have kind of like an intra Harvard debate send over a this. Um, email. But in the meantime, the rest of us outside of Harvard can uh, come to the logical conclusion here, which is that the two parent home is not, in fact, a myth. It so, is not a myth. Yeah. Last episode, we talked about another phenomena. Actually, this is about the, the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is, you know, very well intentioned. But we talked about this tragic story that occurred a five year old that died, according to court documents, at the hands of his biological parents when his foster parents, who had raised him for five years, had created this incredibly loving home. But because of the Indian Child Welfare Act, was taken away from them. And it sounds like there's now a court in Louisiana that's reconsidering the sort of blanket application. Do you want to talk about that, given yeah, your experience? Yeah. In- so um, so I uh, wrote a book a few years ago uh, called The New Trail of Tears, which was about American Indians generally. I spent a bunch of time on Indian reservations, really some of the worst child welfare outcomes in the country. I mean, highest rates of child abuse, sexual abuse. I mean, it's it's really gut-wrenching to to look at some of these statistics. And I've spent some time since our last episode actually looking more closely at that Montana case, too. It is quite amazing because we don't have an explanation of why this tribal court decided to put this child back with his biological parents who were in jail when he was born, both having been convicted of violent felonies. And he was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. He was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. But in most states, anyway, the the bar for showing that you have rehabilitated as a parent, if you have been convicted of violent felonies, including child endangerment, is so high that it's really hard to show that you you should be trusted, especially with a young child like this. And for some reason, you know, the Crow Tribal Court decided to put him back. Especially and- in contrast to the situation that the child was in. They were in a loving foster care, stable home who wanted to adopt him. Right. For for more than four years. And so, you know, one of the questions is, you know, the Indian Child Welfare Act is created because, you know, people think we're unnecessarily, 40 years ago, people think we're unnecessarily removing kids from Indian homes. You know, we want to reemphasize the importance of cultural, of of family connection. Fine. You know what? What we have created is a separate an unequal child welfare system as a result. We have created lower standards for the safety of Indian children in these tribal courts, and it is it is being reinforced by the federal government. So just to give you an example, you know, the Adoption Safe Families Act, which tries to put a timeline on the, the, the amount of months and years that kids 
are in foster care because a bipartisan group in Congress in the 1990s said, this is ridiculous. Kids should not be in foster care forever. Languishing. Doesn't apply to American Indians for all intents and purposes. We are we are happy to let them languish. In fact, some of the, the the tribal courts have said, you know, culturally we don't recognize this idea of severing parental rights. You know what? If your parents are both violent felons in jail for among other things, child endangerment, maybe you need to learn how to recognize the are idea of severing. Are you kidding me? This I mean this this gets at the heart of these blanket rules again. Well intended. Sure. But in the case of this child, imagine born with fetal alcohol syndrome, both parents in jail, placed in a foster home, loving situation, and then somehow there is a rationale that it's better to take that child away simply because they're of Native American heritage. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. So you had a case in Texas, a district court in Texas, basic, a federal district court basically said, about another Indian Child Welfare Act case. I agree, this is unconstitutional. Then it went to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit said, nope, it's constitutional. And now the Fifth Circuit, the entire Fifth Circuit on bank has agreed to rehear this case in January. And I am- is really an extraordinary statement. It is extraordinary. The the entire- the circuit, which is amazing. And I am just hoping that this makes it way back, its way back to the Supreme Court. You know, the Supreme Court has weighed in on the Indian Child Welfare Act before. A few years ago, there was a famous case called the Baby Veronica case. It showed, you know, you had a, a child who was essentially, you know, ripped away from, again, a loving foster family uh, because somehow they didn't, you know, do the right DNA test and, and figure out that there was a father who had a claim on this kid, you know, years after the fact. You know, but the Supreme Court really didn't in that case. It just sort of ruled on a technicality. And here, you know, it, it has the chance, although Clarence Thomas had a great opinion on it, you know, where he really talked about this is we, we you know, everyone is entitled to equal protection. American Indians are American citizens. And we should not be screwing over these children just because, you know, we're, we want to be more culturally sensitive. I'm paraphrasing a lot of Clarence Thomas there. But but let me just no, say it's, 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 it's a great thesis. opinion. Yes. But, uh, um, you know, but it was not the majority opinion. But the court really has a chance to go back in there and say, now, look, we want to protect children. We want to have the same standard of safety and and well-being for all kids. And what, what do you think the defenders of the Child Welfare Act, the Indian, would say in this case? What would they say in defense of why this was applied correctly? Well, one of the things that you mean in the Mon- in the Montana case. Yeah. You know, they would just say, well, probably, you know, state courts screw up child welfare cases, too. And, you know, tribal courts can screw them up too as well. Too bad, too sad. And there's, and there's, and there's, it's absolutely true. I mean, you know, right now, New York is going through the trial of this, you know, horrific case, a kid named Zamir Perkins, who several years ago was killed by his parents. Again, you know, I, I think... So you, they would just say, eh, they would sorry, just say, that's a collateral damage. Right. That's, I mean, that's this just, is, it just happens. This is just what happens. But I think with the, the tribal courts, what you have is not only that they're not, you know, federal law is not being applied to them, but also that they are, that there is really very little oversight. I mean, you have had cases, there was a, a case, the Spirit Lake Reservation, which is in North Dakota, where widespread child abuse... Tribal court there was actually placing foster children with known registered sex abusers. And so, and this went on for years. Unbelievable. A, a federal whistleblower was actually fired. So I know we just talked about how we overuse the word systemic now. Th- these are systemic problems that are occurring in these communities. And we are sort of outsourcing child welfare to them without any kind of good oversight. And I just, I don't think that the Indian Child Welfare Act, that that was the intention behind it originally. But what you have is 
these special interest groups that have dug their heels in and said, you know, this is about tribal sovereignty, this is about preserving our culture, and they have lost sight of the importance of keeping kids safe. And again, tribal sovereignty, those are fantastic intentions. But when it comes to the well-being of children, we can't create these blanket rules that get in the way of what is sensible. And then taken to the extreme, you see children actually dying. How can that be defensible? And the, the one of the most shocking parts of the Indian Child Welfare Act to me is it actually says that the tribes are more important in making these decisions than the parents of the kids. So the case in Texas, for instance, called the Brackeen case, you have a case where the family, the mother, actually wanted this child to be able to stay with this white foster family, and the tribe steps in and says, no, we don't think they should be able to adopt them. So it's even undermining, you know, good-intentioned parents who say, yep. I can't care for this child. I have too many problems, whether it's substance abuse or other things. You know, there are parents out there who say, I can't do this. And we are not even letting them make the decision about, you know, which loving home they want to praise their child We talked about this the last episode, the chilling effect it has on families who would love to take into their homes these children, but clearly are getting the signal, you are not wanted, you're white, you're black, you're whatever, you're not Native American, so you're not worthy of providing your loving home to these children. Guys, we, we, we got to stop kidding ourselves. We have to start with the premise of what's best for the child, not what's best for the tribe or for the adults in the situation. What's best for the child? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is our, our episode for today. So uh, I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I am Ian Rowe. And we are at the American Enterprise Institute, where you can find many uh, more resources, writings, both by Ian and by me about these issues. We write sometimes for the Institute for Family Studies. All of our stuff, though, is on the AEI website. And you can find more information about these cases, about books I've written, about articles Ian's written. And we hope that you will check us out. We hope you'll join us again for another one. Looking forward to our next conversations. 